0: Well, thanks, Mike, great uh, choice of of uh, song that really kind of says it all, amazing love, how can it be? Uh, allow me to lead us in prayer as uh, we get started. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our souls that... Uh, It makes us wiser than all our counselors, for it is true, and it's eternally true, and your word will be uh, eternally um, verified and extant throughout all time and eternity. Thank you that it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he is the yes to everything in Scripture. We thank you for our Jesus, who is far greater and bigger than we could ever imagine. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, at lunch, I was talking with the pastor, and we were talking about uh, uh, Princeton Seminary. And he said he'd been out and seen the Princeton campus, Princeton Seminary. And I said, well, I've been out there just a little over a year ago and preached in Miller Chapel, which is the uh, the old chapel at Princeton which existed when Princeton was a conservative seminary and you had your great old divines like Charles Hodge and uh, the Alexanders and all those people preaching there. And uh, so I was there for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and they asked me to give uh, a lecture. But uh, I recalled a story at the end of that. The story is, is that there was a famous old Princeton prof in the days before the fall named Robert Dick Wilson. He wrote a book called The Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, and he was a great defender of the scriptures against liberal higher criticism, and he was formidable, and he was godly. And on one occasion in Miller Chapel, chapel in which I preached, that's why it was so pointed to me, that a student had come back. He'd been out of Princeton for about a decade He'd been one of uh, Dr. Wilson's students. So as he got up to preach, he looked at the back of the chapel, and in comes old Dr. Wilson, and he sits down. And uh, he can't, the guy can't tell what's going on, so he preaches his sermon. And at the end of it, old Dr. Wilson managed to get himself up front, and he came up to the guy, and he looked at him, and he said, I only go to hear my students once to find out if they are big godders or little godders. He said, you're a big godder, God will best bless you, and he walked back out of the chapel. And I thought how how beautiful that is and what we're talking about, because what we think of God, what we think of Jesus is everything. So that's, that's where we're going with this. Now, um, although I'm on the West Coast and grew up on the West Coast, I was uh, in the Windy City for... Um, over a quarter of a century, for some twenty-seven years, a little longer than that, and an erstwhile acquaintance of mine, an experienced frequent flyer who lives in Chicagoland, was returning from the east. So he's coming east. He came across Lake Michigan, and then he came across two ninety-four, which borders uh, O'Hare Airport on the east side. And as he, as he, uh, as he glanced. Across the aisle, down the freeway, he saw that there, 294, he saw it was just uh, immovable traffic. It was a huge traffic jam. Then he looked out his window to the north, and he could see lights up the expressway where they were just clearing off the wreckage for a wreck. So he knew it would probably be taken care of by the time he got his luggage and got to his car. So when the plane touched down... He had a completely different perspective than the people that are sitting on 294. He knew he'd be home soon. Well, access to a larger perspective definitely has its advantages, doesn't it, to know what's going on. And we share an equivalent advantage in the 11th chapter of John, which is our text. I'd like you to turn to John 11. Now, we have John 11one 1 to 46, but we're just going to concentrate. We'll refer to other things, lest you be here all afternoon. We're going to look at verses 21 through 27, which is the story of Lazarus. So we have that equivalent advantage. We have a perspective. I mean, we've known that story since we were children. We know the story has a great ending. Right? We know that Lazarus is going to be home for dinner with his excellent sisters. And that all the misery and all the anxiety and all the sorrow is going to work out. So with that perspective, with the advantage of the story, what I want to do kind of from above is drop in on that story in different places uh, as we kind of see the confusing traffic in their lives and get that larger perspective. As the scene opens, we gaze into a godly home in Bethany about two miles out of Jerusalem. Bethany was known for a great many things, but in God's word, this village is identified, this is so beautiful in the New Testament, as the town of Mary and Martha. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, I mean, from the divine point of view, it's Bethany, yeah, but it's the town of Mary and Martha. And in this particular home, there were three hearts that believed and trusted in Jesus. And that meant more than some of the notable things that you could say about Bethany. And it wasn't the great meals that were fixed there, though I am sure that Martha put it out. Being Martha, she got it out on the table. It was a relationship. Jesus enjoyed being at home with them because they all loved him and longed to learn from him. He is incarnate. He's a man. He's God, but he's a man. And here's a home that loves him. Here's a couple of hospitable women, and here is Lazarus. And there is domestic Martha, the busy kinetic soul who Jesus once chided, you know, The words to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Here's the put down. Mary has chosen the good portion. But notwithstanding that occasion, Martha is magnificent. Great name, women. Great name. She was a woman of immense faith and great action. She seems to be a very strong uh, herself sort of domestic glue in the family. So you've got magnificent Martha, and then you've got meditative Mary, who in a spontaneous moment goes to the other room, takes out an alabaster flask, breaks off, and anoints Jesus with thirty-five to forty thousand dollars worth of perfume. A year's wages. The, the indignant disciples who were snorting like a bunch of horses. They were angry about this. Judas about the waste of money. And what did Jesus say? Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She actually had actually been listening closely, and it was kind of an anointing for his burial is what it was. She could see what the other disciples didn't see. So, and then there's Lazarus who most identifies a younger brother because he seemed to exercise no leadership or no responsibility. It's not like a teenager to me. Sorry, teenagers. I'm just just joking. As As we look down from above into this loving household from above perspective, it is in disarray because Lazarus has become deathly ill. Now, this is not reading in the text. This is just, human logic you have got two pale worried women scurrying about the house and they they're praying constantly they're they're attending to their brother and their brother is sinking ever deeper and then a languid kind of distant look comes into his eyes as he's not able to focus because he is dying that is pathetic And frantic, the two sisters said, word to Jesus. And here's what they say in verse 3 of our text. We'll just kind of cherry pick here until we get down to it. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, that is an affectionate identification, isn't it? He whom you love. I think it's probably the code word for Lazarus between the sisters. They use it teasingly. You know, that's the one the Lord loves. That's our little brother. Uh, my, I have, I have four children. My youngest, Carrie, William, Carrie is the pastor, and you know what is? He's he's forty three years old today. You know what his sisters say about him? He's the baby. That's what they say about him. You know, and they still resent it. No, they don't. But uh, but you understand what I mean? You you got this kind of familiar your favorite, our little brother, the one whom you love, is sick, and they assumed. I mean, with this great affection for Lazarus, the Lord immediately make his journey and attend to him and their favorite. But that was not to be because Jesus lingered two more days during the space of which Lazarus died. And as the text makes clear in verses 11 through 14, he knew it. He knew he died. Had been told, but he knew it. He knew he was dead. So, from ground level, on the freeway of life, mid life's traffic, midst the sirens and the flashing light, it appears that he neither understands nor cares. But high above the traffic jam, Jesus sees an end which is sublime. In fact, he has ordained the end for these his beloved children. Now, here's essential wisdom for us, and you you can see where this is going, because when we are ravaged by life, it is so difficult to believe that we are really loved. Now, you know, I, I, um, in the last two years, have lost a granddaughter. Um, Walking home from junior college, just out of high school, her earphones on, walking the sidewalk. Man has a heart attack behind the wheel of his car, accelerates and hits her from behind and kills her outright. You know? I, I mean, I, I, our, my family is not unknown to tragedy. I think you can understand how wrenching that is when I think of Caroline. Caroline Noel, born December 7th, 21 years ago now. Um, one of our black granddaughters rescued from the inner city of Chicago. She's now with Jesus. Just maturing, just coming into herself in her majority. So uh, sometimes when life is difficult, it's difficult to believe that we're love. But God knows and presides, and he is all-powerful. And he has an end in mind which is glorious. But the glory is yet to be revealed. And we can be sure of this. The ultimate glory, we've been talking about glory, far exceeds what Lazarus would soon experience. The glory that awaits our Caroline, the glory that awaits us, far exceeds what is going to happen to Lazarus. Now, when Lazarus died, his breathing stopped. His haggard sisters rose from his bedside, and a cry went up from their house to the streets of Bethany. This is this is um, this is Bethany. This is the environs of Jerusalem. This is Israel. And Lazarus is prepared for burial, dressed in a white linen gown, poignantly known in Hebrew literature as a traveling dress. Isn't that interesting? So his traveling dress is put on him, and he's wrapped lovingly with bandages and spices by his sisters, their little brother. And then the brokenhearted sisters led a procession from the grave. And the tomb, or his in tomb, Some memorial speeches were made, and then the mourners formed kind of a gauntlet through which The the sisters passed away from the tomb with everyone wailing, went home. By the time our Lord had decided to come, it was the fourth day, the day when the ritual of mourning reached its highest point because the body was decaying. You go near that grave and you could smell the stench of death coming through, the stench of hopelessness. Well, Martha evidently had been quietly made aware that the Lord was outside Bethany. Somebody had let her know, come in. She'd probably, that is Martha, had slipped out unseen and went to the outskirts of town to meet him. And there she stood. Now, uh, women, you've been grieving for four days. It's, it's not a time that you bathe, wash your feet, or do anything. So here's this woman backlit by the bright countryside. And she is pale and grieving, and weary, and disheveled. So she's there. And before her is Jesus just on the road and his dust-covered disciples. It's quite a scene, isn't it? And Martha speaks first, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Uh, I think this refrain, Lord, if you had been here, it often come to her and her sister's lips if the Lord was only here, if Jesus was only here. Where is he if he was only here? Because Mary, in verse 32, repeats the same phrase to Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here. The wait had been agonized and they thought that he would surely come moment by moment and save the day. And finally... In their intense sorrow, they repeatedly said to each other, if only he'd come, Lazarus would not have died. Now, those words that she first speaks to Jesus border on a reproof, don't you think? I mean, I don't think they were because she caught herself in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Very interesting. Ben here, wouldn't die, but I know. Now, it's it's. she knows, she believes in him, but I, it's not a fully serious suggestion because when Jesus would go on to suggest that he would raise Lazarus from the tomb, her response about Lazarus' decay shows that she did not imagine that Jesus would do it right there. That's not what she was thinking. So she's so beautiful, this magnificent Martha, straining to exercise her faith in her tear-blinding grief. What an exquisite soul. And I, I love this woman. Love to meet her. Oh, who will? So will you. And Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. It's an interesting statement. But D.A. Carson says that is a masterpiece of ambiguity. Because on one level, your brother will rise again to be taken no more than a reference to the final resurrection since. That's what, that's what we say, don't we? At the funeral? Resurrection's coming, you know? Our hope is the resurrection. So it could be. Jesus is saying to her, death won't have the final word, Martha. At the great resurrection, Lazarus will be restored to bodily life. Take heart. But on another level, he was promising the immediate resurrection of Lazarus. Now, I think the point escapes Martha for the moment as she answers. Listen to this, because you see what she says in verse 24? I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Of course, I Believe in the resurrection. Nevertheless, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. No. Now, Jesus uh, gives one of the great then seven I am sayings in John's gospel. You might want to jot them down. I'll give you the references. Jesus variously says there's seven I am sayings. I'm the bread of life at 635. I am the light of the world, Eight twelve, 12 Huge declarations. I am the door, chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10 again, verses 11 and 14. And Then this one, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. And in John 15, I am the true vine, John 15, 1 and 5. Here, Jesus declares to this magnificent soul, magnificent Martha, and look at it in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then what does he say to her? Do you believe this? He says to her. Now, as you look at, you unpack that, notice that he didn't say, Martha, I've got resurrection power. Uh, Martha, I do resurrections, that's what he said. Um, or, I will be resurrected. All of which he could have said of himself, but rather he said, I am the resurrection. I looked it up in the French, because it sounds so elegant, I won't say it, but it's just, je suis, you know, la resurrection. Um, uh my being is the resurrection. Or if you want to put it in cold analytical terms, I am ontologically the resurrection. Resurrection is here. Resurrection is me. Moi. And so. It's just very not very far along in John's Gospel. On that first Easter morning, this Jesus, this I am the resurrection exploded from the tomb. He is the eternal I am today, and there is no resurrection apart from him. He is the resurrection, and only those that are in him will be resurrected. And then don't forget the second half of the declaration I am the life. All life is in him. There is no eternal life apart from him. I mean, this is huge. There stands Martha, disheveled, tear stained, dirty. There's Jesus with the dust of the road on him, and he has said, Do you believe? This. Um, Looking very closely then back at verses 25 and 26, notice he uses the verb believe three times. I am the resurrection life. Whoever, there it is, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and, there it is again, believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha? Believe this. Think he's trying to make a point? He's not asking if she believes that he's about to raise her brother from the dead. Rather, he is asking her to declare her personal trust in him as the resurrection and life. Now, hear Martha. Oh, my. Yes, Lord, I believe. There it is that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha goes far beyond what he asked. Her yes, Lord, affirms her personal trust that he is the resurrection of life and also the personal confidence that he is the Christ, notice, Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. So her confession, I believe in the Greek, is utterly stunning, and it is the perfect tense, the perfect tense in Greek. Yes, Lord, I have believed, and I continue to believe, and I will always believe. Such rich, deep trust. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the resurrection. That's what she has believed, and that's where her belief stands. This is awesome. She goes beyond what he asked. So, so much for uh, Nervous Nellie, Martha, 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 you're worried about so many things. Listen to this. Her confession is at least as deep and profound as Peter's confession in the 8th chapter of Mark the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And I'll tell you what, the next few minutes he didn't have to say to her, get behind me, Satan. I, I, this is, this is, I think this woman has the most stunning confession of Christ in the New Testament. Isn't that something? Well, while Martha was meeting with the Lord, Mary was back in the house. And back in the house, all the tur- furniture is turned toward the wall. That was tradition at funerals so that the mourners are either sitting on the floor or low-lying stools that they had brought. You couldn't sit on the furniture in the house. And after the sisters returned from the grave, they had eaten, listen to this, a somber meal of lentils, boiled eggs, and round loaves of bread, which by their spherical shape symbolized that life was rolling on to eternity. That was a symbolic meal. I rather suspect that Mary had not eaten much since then. And she was most certainly unkempt and barefoot because mourners were committed not to washing themselves or wearing sandals. And the traditional mourning had reached its peak on this day because Lazarus' beloved body was decomposing. So now, Magnificent Martha summons her meditative sister, Mary of Bethany, Verses 28 through 32, I'll read them. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that's Martha, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, on the road. When the Jews... Who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, She's at his feet. She's different than Martha, isn't she? She's on the ground. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. The same words. Now, there's only enough time in the time we have to briefly reference Jesus' response, which was anger. Verse 33 and 34, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now, I want to say it's inadequate to note that he was deeply moved in spirit or groaned in spirit or sighed heavily because he was indignant, angry. That's what the words signify. He was angry with sin, its effects, and angry with the unbelief of those who were grieving like pagans without hope. And secondly, there's sorrow because it tells us, verse 35, Jesus wept. But brothers and sisters, it wasn't for Lazarus or even for Mary and Martha so often said, rather he wept over sin and he wept over death and he wept over unbelief and his grief left his face glistening with tears. This is Jesus. Now Jesus, to play emotion by those around, is interpreted in two ways, both interpretations, curiously right and curiously wrong. To some... Jesus' tears before Lazarus' tomb testified how he loved him. That's what they say in verse 3. And the word is phileo. This is deep friendship, love. And their conclusion was true. Jesus did love those sisters and he loved Lazarus, but Jesus' tears were hardly evidence of it in the way the Jews imagined because they understood his grief to be a despairing grief for Lazarus and his sisters. Others remember the spectacular healing of the man born blind and wondered why somehow, if he could do that, why didn't he do it for Lazarus? And on one level, the reasoning is sound. Jesus did heal the blind man, and he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. So they're puzzled, and they're confused. Nevertheless, even to ask the question in this way betrays deep unbelief. Now, here we go. A typical tomb in Jesus' day was hollowed-out room, perhaps in a hillside. It typically had eight spaces on the wall, three on each side and two in the back. So you could have eight bodies in a tomb. And Lazarus' tomb could well be occupied by other bodies, some really old, some Recently deceased and in the process of further decomposition. In fact, in those tombs, they oftentimes take the real old ones out and put new ones in. Nice place, these tombs. Talk about that is a mortuary. Believe me. Agitated. Jesus asked for the stone to be removed. And listen, Martha, okay, Martha's made the great... Confession objects. The, the idea is with all this misery, why open the grave and let out the stench? Why look on the decomposing face of our brother's rotting corpse? But you see, she didn't have the slightest idea. She knew he, the, 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 about the ultimate resurrection, she knew who he was. He's the Messiah. But she didn't have the slightest of what was going to happen. So Jesus insisted, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see, here it is, the glory of God? The stone was rolled away. And Lazarus, freshly wrapped, um, I won't say redolent, but uh, smelly, body is in view, and it's not a nice smell. The tense crowd pressed closer and quieted. There's no more weeping, but there is, I wouldn't call it a macabre curiosity, but they're peering into the darks of the tomb, and they're smelling it. And our Lord's Moist eyes are fixed on the darkness. Verses 41 and 42, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing here. Why? That they may, what? Believe that you sent me. There it is again. And then Jesus called out in a loud voice. Now, if he called in a loud voice, I won't do it right here. But it would be, Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't like, Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't that. Remember, he's a Hebrew. He's not a Bostonian. And he calls out. And they saw movement. And Lazarus' body edged off the shelf. Then stood erect, shuffling out mummy-like into the daylight. In its wrappings. Mary and Martha rushed to him. Now let's let's get let's get up. Let's get up in the sky, looking down on 294. Wrappings are tossed into the sky. They wept, they hugged, they danced barefooted. It's party time in Bethany. These are Hebrews. What a spectacle from above. Lazarus and his sisters circling around in joy midst the fallen grave clothes. Can you see it? Shouts echoing off the rocky landscape to heaven. He is alive. It was him. It is here his firm, youthful body. Lazarus is alive. And heaven knew what it was. It was an acted, real-life parable, the life-giving power of Jesus, who is the resurrection and life. This isn't the great resurrection, but this is a proto-resurrection to give us a sense of ultimately what's going to happen. And come Easter morning, this same Jesus, a few days later, is catapulted from the grave, and Easter Resurrection Day waits all his children. And guess what? We will dance on new, healthy feet on that day. And our songs won't echo off the rocks, they'll echo off the stars. A little poetic, perhaps, but pretty close to the truth, isn't it? Yet there's another divine perspective, which you are to grasp midst earth traffic. Resurrection, and this is the big deal, and everybody ought to hear it. Resurrection is only for those who believe. That's what the story is all about. Now, look back at the sacred text, verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, he says, so that you may believe. But let us go see him. See the word belief there? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See that? Verses 41 and 42, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe. You see it? Now, the great theme of the book of John, the melodic line of the book of John is John 20, verses 30 and 31. That's the theme of the gospel. And I'll just quote it for you. You probably know it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, what? That Jesus Messiah is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then verses 24 and 25. Jesus speaking. I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what can the preacher say on that text? Do you believe this? Do you truly believe this? Does your belief is do you believe in such a way that it's not just intellectual and esoteric and cold but do you believe this with all your heart? Do you believe this? Because the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. And if that's the case then you're going to see the glory. The glory that awaits you. The most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, yet though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the question that we end uh, this time on. All glory to God. Amen.